Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Is cannabis-impaired driving being addressed fairly and effectively by police? Dr. David Rosenblum is a professor in the Faculty of Medicine and Psychiatry at McMaster University. He's appeared as an expert witness in cases involving drugs and driving, and he says the answer to the question is no. Bullying since the St. Michael's School revelations, media and most Canadians have been focusing on bullying and, as usual, will accomplish ultimately very little, if anything. The focus, says my guest, must not only be on bullying and hazing, but teaching to treat people with respect. Carol Todd is Amanda's mother. She joined me. The RCMP has announced that much more money, more than the $100 million set aside, is going to be required to settle the class action lawsuit against the force by women officers and civilian employees for sexual harassment and assault. I spoke with Janet Merlo. She's a former RCMP officer, and she was one of the driving forces of the class action suit. Now, on the issue of cannabis, if you are suspected of driving impaired because of cannabis, you might expect that you'll be treated fairly and that a scientific test would be applied. So the question is, do police have proper scientific methods to determine someone is driving high? My guest says, absolutely not. And police drug recognition experts, I'd only just heard this term recently, are guessing at best during their roadside stops, and innocent people can and are having their lives changed significantly by unscientific testing. Let's find out more. My guest is Dr. David Rosenblum. He's a professor in the Faculty of Medicine and Psychiatry at McMaster University. He's appeared as an expert witness in cases involving drugs and driving. Professor Rosenblum, thank you very much for the time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So uh, let, let's go to the most fundamental question. I, uh, I'll start at the beginning. Is drug-impaired driving being addressed effectively, not scientifically, is it being addressed effectively? Do police have proper methods to evaluate and determine whether uh, their drug recognition experts are doing things properly. If you're pulled over to the side of the road, are you going to get a fair s- square deal? Well, let me start by saying that uh, a couple of things. One is there's no question cannabis does and can impair driving if one smokes enough of it. That's not in doubt. There are many studies documenting that. The problem with the testing for impairment by marijuana or any other drug is that the tests that were developed originally by well-intentioned people who recognized a problem is that these tests were really based on the effects of alcohol rather than drugs. And the tests were developed by two police officers and an optometrist in Los Angeles. And the scientific basis for them is very shaky. Uh, For example, we know that um, alcohol can affect balance. Everybody's seen somebody staggering drunk, and that's because of the effects of alcohol on the cerebellum in the brain. And um, the question is, do the other drugs affect 
that part of the brain that alcohol acts on? And the answer actually is no. So that um, marijuana, for example, is affecting the part of the brain that deals with emotion rather than physical coordination. And so a set of tests developed for alcohol on questionable scientific grounds uh, are now applied to other drugs. And I have yet to find any scientific article that demonstrates that the battery of these 12 steps that they go through has ever been tested scientifically. That's alarming. Well, um, it is. It's, it's alarming. Well, while I agree, um, I think that uh, the intention is a good intention. Mm -hmm. I think we should not have imper people impaired by drugs driving. Absolutely not. The question is, how do you tell whether they're impaired by the drug or by something else? And remember, the tests are also quite subjective, so that there's a certain degree of judgment that goes into making the decision. Okay, now police have what is known as drug recognition experts. So I would expect the layperson, if I'm pulled over and I don't smoke marijuana, I don't consume cannabis at all in any way, I'll have a beer and a scotch and a glass of wine, not at the same time, but I don't consume uh, marijuana ever. I mean, maybe two or three times in my life and it just bored me. Anyway, so if police arrive and there's a drug recognition expert or DRE as they're known, I would expect being under suspicion, having not consumed any cannabis, but being under suspicion, having been told I'm under suspicion of having done so, I would expect this drug recognition expert to be exactly that, a drug recognition expert. How expert are they? Well, they're expert in administering a series of tests that I don't think pharmacologically reflect what's going on in the brain of people who smoke marijuana. And you also got to remember, they don't have a baseline. I mean, I have a slight imbalance problem when I wake up and have a cup of coffee in the morning because that's me. So doing a test of coordination, I would not do very well and I'd be totally sober. So not having a baseline is problematic. How would this person behave normally in the absence of any substance? So it could be, if I'm the guinea pig again, I could be um, declared by this drug recognition expert to be, um, to, in their opinion, or his or her opinion, that I would have consumed marijuana, the cannabis, and that I was under the influence of, and regardless of my protestations to the to the contrary, and regardless that they have no uh, they have no baseline, no scientific test, the weight of the law starts to come down on me. Well, and that's really a question for a lawyer rather than myself. But you've got to remember that there are various things that are not drug related that can have an impact on the what are called psychophysical tests, you know, the finger-to-nose, the walking a straight line, etc. There's a very good study showing that volunteers who have the common cold are as likely to get the same results on these tests as somebody with a blood alcohol level over the legal limit. So if 80 milligrams per 100 mil is the legal limit for driving with alcohol, 
These tests compare to somebody with a level of 100, and that's with the common cold. And then there are substances that you take for the cold, like Benadryl, which has exactly the same effect as having a cold on driving. In other words, that can impair your driving if you take a couple of capsules of it or a couple of tablets. Sure, and it says that right on the label. Well, it may or may not. And on some of these, it's very hard to actually read the label. That's true. Uh, I was looking at the labels on DayQuil and NyQuil. NyQuil has the antihistamine. DayQuil doesn't. NyQuil because it helps you sleep at night. I couldn't read the labels. The font was too small. Mm-hmm. So uh, now one could ask for advice from the pharmacist, and I would advise that. Uh, but... Um, you know, they can print off larger size labels and product monographs. Dr. Rosenblum, I wanted to ask you about saliva testing. Yeah. Now, is that going on, and how reliable is that? Yeah, it's happening in some places, but it's not r- reliable. Let me come back to the word reliable in a moment. Basically, if you smoke marijuana, then you're going to have the active ingredient THC in your saliva whether you smoked it a few hours before or a few minutes before. So you don't know when uh, the person smoked. And it's a very bad surrogate for whether they're impaired while driving. And the other thing that happens is THC, the active ingredient, circulates through fat in the body. And it circulates in and out of fat in the bloodstream and into the urine. And again, you can't tell from any measurement of it whether it's at an impairing level or not. So that's problematic. Um, There's going to be a lot of false positives. And that means bad things for people who aren't, or leads to bad things for people who aren't driving high. Yes. And so what the government is trying to do is come up with what's called a per se level. In other words, Notwithstanding everything that I've just said, if that level is above a certain amount, then that means that it's equivalent to being impaired. I mean, the reason that there are two charges with alcohol, one being over 80 and another one being impaired, is that you can still be impaired and not be over 80 if you don't drink very much very often. Uh, but you're still impaired, and so they can get you on both on one or the other charge. Um, but with cannabis, um, just having a slight amount isn't scientifically helpful. And although there are good studies linking blood levels to impairment, the drug dissipates. It disappears so quickly from the bloodstream that unless, even if it was legal to take a blood sample, that unless you took it within half an hour or less of the person smoking, it would not be helpful either. But let me just go back to that term reliable because that's very much misused. Um, I remember when people were questioning whether the tests for cannabis and impairment when it was being legalized uh, were good enough. I remember the Honorable Ralph Goodale saying, these tests are reliable. The scientists tell us that. But what reliable means is that if you repeat the tests and you get the same result, that's reliable. The problem is it doesn't mean it's valid. So that you can be measuring the same thing over and over again, and it's not helpful because it doesn't reflect impairment. 
And that's a large part of the problem with these tests. So you've got a correlation, but you don't have causation. You can't actually prove the person's impaired. But by law, if you accept that these tests are positive and reliable, the person can be convicted. Well, that's not scientific, even if it's legal. And do we know whether significant numbers of people, uh, a number of people, have found themselves in court defending themselves for something they didn't do, but the DREs say they did, and the alcohol tests suggest they might have? I, I don't have access to those statistics, so I, I just don't know. And I think it's going to be very hard because you're looking at a legal level of a proof rather than a scientific level of proof. Mm -hmm. When these tests have been implemented in studies, the chance of them picking up an impaired person is around 50%. That's like flipping a coin to decide whether the person is impaired or not by that drug. That is personally alarming because I'm going to be driving later. I don't consume cannabis. I might be pulled over. I might go through all of this. And I could say to them, look, I know. I have just did a program on it. I know. This isn't scientific. And they just tell me they're moving ahead anyway, and, and, and they do. Dr. Rosenblum, thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope we can pick this up another day. Whenever you want. Thank you. Talk. Thank Thanks you. very much. Professor David Rosenblum from uh, McMaster University. We've uh, addressed bullying issues on uh, on this program on many an occasion. We spoke uh, with Retea Parsons' mom and dad, and we've also spoken quite a bit with Carol Todd. She's Amanda's mom, of course. And just go to amandatodlegacy.org, amandatodlegacy.org. And Carol continues to do incredible work, um, really internationally, as she deals with the issue of violence and bullying and uh, internet violence and d- does it for really to, as a service to to people who I think might be lost without the kind of input that Carol Todd provides. So I have a lot of respect for you, Carol. Thank you so much for being who you are and what you do. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Roy. Yeah, your words are... Uh are, are kind of emotional to me at this time because uh, I do do what I do just because I want to keep the world safer. Yeah, and you've been on the air with uh, Retea Parsons' mother and uh, and father, and I've listened to the three of you, and and uh, we were part of a series of programs we did about a family in British Columbia that were facing a horrible reality with their mm-hmm. son. They were concerned he was going to commit suicide, and... Uh, and it's a long story, so we, we don't have the time to get into it. But you, you've always brought us so much commitment to this issue. And when I called you, I think it was on Wednesday, yep. and I said, Carol, what I'd like to do is talk to you about the issue of bullying. Let's talk. You know, the whole country is talking about St. Michael's. Let's, let's, get at, let's get at bullying, and let's get at the hazing issue again. And you said to me, that's not enough. And please tell us why it's not enough, because this is what we do. We, you're absolutely correct. You said that. You said, "Look, we 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 talk about bullying, we deal with the issue, we talk about incidents, and then we carry on, and it slides away from the public consciousness until the next okay. story arrives." So there's mm-hmm. a third component here that needs to be addressed, and that's what you told me. So please share that with us. Um, often, when we hear about 
stories that happen in the news, whether it's in Canada or the U.S. or globally, um, we we deal with it and we talk about it, and we're in the reactionary phase. It's happened, and we ask the question, what are we going to do now? And and we we continue to to just reiterate the incidences, right? Um, and my thinking, and, and this is my also my role as both a parent, an advocate, and an educator, is what are we doing in the preventionary models? Like, are we are we getting to the kids? And um, like at St. Michael's, and what happened to my daughter, and what happened to Ritea after the situation, and we say, okay, so so what are we going to do now? How are we going to, you know, stop the suicide contagion or or stop the bullying behaviors? We need to work at the interventionary phase, and and that to me is about teaching children at a, a young and early age, whether it's about internet safety, whether it's about behaviors, um, both in the real world and online and offline. And, and we need to talk about what they can do to change and what we can do to affect changes in behavior. And those behaviors are about teaching more um, about compassion, empathy, kindness, and respect. Because if we instill those um, in, in, in individuals, both young and older, um, we could have, we will have a more safe and caring world. And this is part of what I believe in and, and what I go out and I speak to a group of whether it's, it's kids or whether it's young adults or whether it's parents or educators. I want to talk about what we need to do and that's, that's the intervention. That, that's talking about how we should behave and what we should do and how we should react and and um, hopefully that will make a change. Right? Yeah, you know, when you say that, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's clear because if there's a change in attitude, then there's a change in fact. Uh, if, if you change your attitude, then you're not going to do the things like we've been hearing about and talking about, not just in the last couple of weeks, but it's ongoing. Do you find, and you're in the United States right now. Uh, yes. And as a as a speaker at, at an event, uh, do you find a receptive audience? Do you find that people are willing to to listen and and then also willing to take action? I do. Um, it depends. It, it different audiences. Um, I've spoken like all over in different cities in the United States from. You know, kids all the way from kindergarten to grade 12 worldwide, and I've talked to educators in in the various um, school roles, and, and they are receptive. I, I find kids being the hardest audience, older kids being the hardest hardest audience. I that's why I truly believe that you know what we talk about, we need to talk and start at a really young age so it becomes a habit. Yeah. Um, Carol, Carol why, why, is, why why is the why are the older kids the hardest audience? I think because they've got their own things instilled into their brain. I've been doing a lot of reading on brain research, and um, you know, when when puberty hits, the adolescent brain isn't really functioning um, to a maturity level, and they think it, it's part of um, that brain thinks that they are the best, they are invincible, they can do anything they want, mm-hmm. they they are impulsive, they don't think about. Um, future consequences of their behaviors. 
okay. right? Um, but when you talk about talk to younger kids and you teach them um, the, cer- the certain values, and hopefully you will instill this as normalized behavior. And I have to go back to thinking, you know, about you know mothers against drunk driving and, and drunk driving. So we have a crew of, of young adults now who take it upon themselves to find alternate drivers um, when they go out and, and they go drinking. I'm not saying all, right? Um, but but this is, has been in the works for 20, 30 years. It takes time. Distracted driving, you know, texting and, and being preoccupied while driving. We're starting to see, you know, it, it's the younger generation that will put their phones away. It's the older generation that says, now, you know, um, oh, I've got a business appointment. I need to, you know, someone's trying to contact me. But when you put these rules in and, and talk about them year after year, day after day with our young, they don't see any different, like seatbelt laws, right? Yeah. I remember when I was young and we were bouncing around in the back of my parents' Pontiac and there were no seatbelts. And when that came into effect, the grumblings of my parents about, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. But now when you walk into a, get into a vehicle, your young child actually says, mommy, daddy, you don't have your seatbelt on. Mm-hmm. That, well, you, that's not right. You're you're in you're in New Hampshire now, where of course it's the only state left where you don't have to wear a seatbelt. And and I used to go to New Hampshire quite a bit when I lived in Quebec. And you cross the border from Vermont into New Hampshire. There's a big sign that says, "If you're under 18," I'm paraphrasing. If you're under 18, mm-hmm. you must wear a seatbelt. If you're over 18, use common sense. So I would get I, first time I did the, I got to the border, I thought, "Oh, free at last." And I, <laughs> right, and I and I unclipped the seatbelt. I'm driving around. You know, it's pretty cool. This is nice. I can move. I'm not restricted. About a half an hour later, I thought, "What are you doing?" So I put the seatbelt on, which is exactly what happened when I rode my motorcycle through New Hampshire years earlier. I took off my mm-hmm. helmet because I could, and then okay. I had the same same revelation. Hey, stupid! Put the hat back on. Yep. So so it's it's con- it, it it's learned and conditioned yes. behavior. And then you'll learn to do the right thing. What is disturbing about bullying? I have to take a break, Carol, then we'll come back. Yep. But what's disturbing about the bullying issue particularly is that it goes on every day in every strata of society. People are being harmed. People are being hurt. People are actually committing suicide because of bullying. We know that. You, you've lived that tragic reality. And yet we, we only talk about it when, it, when, it's, um, when it's a headline creating s- Reality. Then we go back to pretending it doesn't exist. Can't do that. But the word harassment has been there forever, and, and it's in our criminal code. Yeah. Right. What bullying is is really harassment. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on, Physical, please. Verbal. Sure. We'll come back with Carol Todd. She. Uh, I have so much respect for her. Back to Carol Todd, and uh, it, please visit um, AmandaToddLegacy.org. AmandaToddLegacy.org or you can actually sign on and receive uh, updates and information from amandatodlegacy.org and participate in really addressing this issue, the issue of bullying. The world is horrified. We're horrified as a society when we hear about situations like the one at St. Michael's School. But we can't just close the door after we've had a couple of weeks of what appears to be cathartic discussion and charges being laid. And, and then there's this case of, well, we'll get on to other things now. But the bullying continues. There are kids who will, are terrified about going to school tomorrow. It's, it's Sunday, and, and they're, they're scared of going to school tomorrow. There are kids who are terrified of going online. Well, back with Carol. Carol, the issue of, um, of the online bullying and the online victimization, 
Is that situation under, not under control, but it is it improving? Is there greater, um, is there greater uh, saturation of the message for parents and kids? Is, 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 is it safer now? Um, I, I think that there's a lot more information out there on um, being able for educators to talk to their class about um, digital literacy, digital citizenship. There's more access to information about parents to have that conversation with their their children at home. I, I get that argument about what is the best age for my child to have a, a device or what is the best age for me to start this conversation with my with my ch- child. Um, and, and often, you know, when they're getting their first device, that, that may be too late to have that conversation. It, at that point, it needs to be an ongoing conversation. We need to start to talk earlier about uh, to our children about um, computers and devices and online safety and, and even, you know, the effects of, of bullying and what would happen if. Um, and we need to continue to have those, those conversations. I think that a lot is being done, um, but not enough conversations are being had. And then when we go and, you know, you have school talks and everything, our kids are often tuning us out because they're, some of them will think, oh, here we go again, we're getting that bullying talk that we get every year. The conversation about behaviors and, and what you do on and offline need to be talked about 365 days a year. There needs to be a pink shirt day. We need to keep bringing it up and we don't, we, we, we sometimes forget and we have our one day and, and call it done. We, we tick it off our, our to-do list, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's really important that parents really get more informed. And you may think it, this might not happen to my family. There, there won't be, you know, a, a suicide, an attempted uh, bullying, um, cyberbullying, um, the hazing that happened at St. Michael. It's not going to happen to my family. I don't need to talk about it. I trust my child. But situations can happen at a drop of a hat to anyone at any time, and we have to be prepared. We, we take first aid courses to better inform ourselves, but to hope that we never have to use the, use, use the practices that you learn. I'm about to take a mental health first aid course. I, I know I've used, I'll use it, right? But I don't want to have to use it because I want people to, to take that initiative and, and learn more about online, offline bullying, cyberbullying, virtues of kindness, compassion, empathy, and, and to teach others to have that water cooler conversation, to talk about it with their peers, their workmates, and keep that conversation going because it's so important for the, for the families um, of, and the kids at St. Michael's. Um, when I heard about it, I, I didn't get angry. What I felt was a, a sort of a sadness and a sadness that the, the continued messaging and information hadn't somehow hadn't penetrated the heads of those um, those those individuals who have been charged or their peers that didn't report um, or the ones that shared the video. Um, there, there has there's something that is missing at this point where our kids aren't getting it and where it falls to is is for the adults that surround our children to um, be the ones to continue those conversations at home, at school, in the community. Um, We're all responsible. 
right? We we're not we all, are. and I, I don't want to put anyone to make them feel guilty, or but we are all responsible for um, maintaining the future of our our next generation. We are, Carol. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for what you do. You're welcome. Take care. Anytime. We'll be we'll be in okay. touch. Okay, right, Carol Todd. Bye bye. Amanda Blah, Amanda Todd uh, Legacy dot org is the uh, website. She does a lot of great work, and you know, kids carry it alone. They carry the fact that they're being bullied quite often. They just carry it alone. They don't think anybody will t- knows how to help them, or nobody can help them, or they don't want to be singled out. They don't want to be pointed out because it's only going to get worse. We have to get past that. And uh, Carol Todd is doing a lot of good work in that regard. 2016, Bob Paulson was the RCMP commissioner. And you may recall the the news conference, Mr. Paulson or Commissioner Paulson and uh, Ralph Goodell, the Minister for Public Safety, they had a news conference. And they announced um, a $100 million compensation fund for RCMP, female RCMP officers and women civilian employees of the RCMP who had been sexually harassed and sexually assaulted while working for and within the RCMP structure um, after September 1974. And it was known, the settlement was known as the Merlot-Davidson Settlement after plaintiffs Janet Merlot and Linda Davidson and as you know, if you listen to this program, Janet Merlo has been a guest on, on the show many times. And she's back with us today because, Janet, and thank you for taking the time. Uh, we now know, according to the commissioner, Brenda Lucky, the new commissioner, that the number they anticipated was about 1,000 women would, um, would declare that they had been sexually assaulted or harassed. Now the number's three or four times as high, which they should have anticipated, and uh, so this class action lawsuit is going to significantly exceed the $100 million budgeted. They should have seen that coming, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, once, once we first started speaking out, the numbers just started growing so quickly that at the, on the day of the apology, actually, the, the official numbers were in the 500s, and we, we expected it to double for sure because that's, that's usually what happens apparently in class actions once the once a settlement is announced, but we had uh, we had no idea it would grow this big. You know, I look at that number, I look at that day, 2016, and then I, I remember we first started speaking. Uh, I spoke with you and with Catherine Galliford and other women in the RCMP. Had to be maybe eight or nine years ago we first started speaking. But then mm-hmm. we also have a news story from 1980 where this issue of sexual harassment within the RCMP was being bandied back and forth by the likes of John Nunziata and Sheila Copps when they were members of Parliament, and that goes back almost 40 years. That's right, and I think in the mid-80s, 1986, I believe, that they they openly admitted that there was a sexual harassment problem Uh, within the force. And did nothing. Absolutely nothing, no. How are things now within the force? Well, um, as you know, I'm retired, but I... Still hear from women almost weekly, new people who reach out to me on social media or sometimes through my book publisher. They'll write a letter and and they'll get it to me. And and there's there's still so much going on in in terms of dealing with the harassment problem and bullying. Nothing 
nothing's really been done. Now, you also uh, have concerns about the suicide of a colleague of yours. And is the inquest beginning next week? On Monday. On Monday. What's the what's the concern? What, we, what can we say without getting into areas we shouldn't? Well, I never met that individual, but I've met through the whole class action process a group of people who worked with him. And, and with this upcoming inquest, none of the people that were closest to him in the days prior to his death have been subpoenaed to this inquest. So we're wondering just how transparent it's going to be because some of the key people who have very relevant and valid information about what happened in those days leading up to the loss um, haven't been haven't been subpoenaed to to testify. So their testimonies won't won't be heard. So how can you have an inquest? I mean, this is a I, mean, I don't expect you to have the answer to the question, but you know the answer, and I do. How can you have an inquest into someone's suicide? Particularly in a in a contentious issue that is in, has enveloped the force now for decades and has resulted in the class action lawsuit, how can you then go forward and not and not bring all the witnesses in? Well, I mean, it all it says back, is I think to to the trans issue of transparency, and they're and they're still not to the point where they want to be transparent. I think they're they're kind of skewing this a little bit to to cover up just how bad things were at that time for that person. Yeah, so it, it continues. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know they're starting to do some some groundwork and, and get out and, and talk to the boots on the ground people to see, you know, where change needs to come. But they can study it until the cows come home, but until they start making some changes, it's not going to get better for anybody. And they know what needs to be done. They're just, it's it's almost a cost of doing business for them to pay these settlements out and and not put the money in the in the effort and have the will to change go forward. Are you hearing from serving officers, female and male? Almost weekly, yeah. Um, new people almost weekly that are, some are just on, on the brink of quitting. I heard there's a new slogan, and the slogan is called Try to Survive Till 25. And that's the... Time that you can apply for a full pension, so that's pretty sad in the national police force. That is sad, and now they know that the number is. They admit that the number is not going to be the one thousand. They knew that going in. There's no way that Ralph Goodale. I can't imagine. I shouldn't say that there's no way, but I can't imagine that Mr. Goodale or Commissioner Paulson at the time in 2016, when they were when they were facing you that day at that uh, national news conference, there's no way they 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 couldn't have known or anticipated. That it would over all those years be more than a thousand women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the, when the original pool, I think that that could have come forward was was quite high. And I wonder about those who passed away and never got to see this day to to put in submission claims and stuff. Yeah. That you know, when you go back to 1974, we've lost a lot of women just through old age and through natural causes that will never have their stories told and their. Their families won't get any financial compensation. Nice round numbers, though, right? A thousand and a hundred million. So, so for the for the public relations person, that's easy to write. So we'll get nice round numbers: thousand, hundred million, and and then we move on. So, I mean, that to me is what it was. That's what they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
and and to have all that money spent already, I still hear from so many women who are no like they've put in their submissions and haven't heard anything. So it either speaks to the number that they've resolved already and the high numbers that that women are getting awarded on the scale from one to six that they've used up the money already or or just the, the sheer number of claims that are coming in. They, they're anticipating needing a lot more than they already have. Wouldn't be surprised if it goes higher still. Yeah, some women feel that they've been low-balled. Some women feel that they didn't get what they deserved out of it, and, and there's some pretty disappointed ladies out there also. So now your book is uh, No One to Tell, Breaking My Silence on Life in the RCMP. How's it being received? Uh, very well. It's uh, it's actually become mandatory reading for a course in Ontario for a, I believe it's a police sciences course. So that was that was interesting. And yeah, I hear from a lot of people who say that the stories are, although they never met me and never knew anything about this until it went public, that their stories are very similar. So it just goes to show how systemic it's been. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? Pardon? How are you doing? Um, I'm doing a little better. I'm really struggling to get out of my house. I'm very reclusive and have agoraphobia, so I, I don't, I only leave my house when I have to. And, and this, you know, people say, oh, well, your settlement is done, but it, it doesn't take away the effects of the PTSD and the anxiety and depression and all those things that we'll all struggle with for the rest of our lives. None of that goes away and no money can, can make it go away. Well, you've done a lot for so many people. You've given voices, a uh, voice to people who had no voice, and you've uh, op- provided uh, strength for people to step forward and, and, and talk about what happened to them. So you've done a lot for so many people, Janet. Well, thank you. And I've truly been honored. I was telling the other day how, how many good, solid friendships I've gained through this whole process and people that I never would have met. And and for that, I'm totally honored and, and, and blessed, for sure. Speaks volumes. No One to Tell, Breaking My Silence on Life in the RCMP by Janet Merlo. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. Take care. Bye. Janet Merlo on The Roy Green Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.